episode 346. Can pharma imagine how our health system will look in the future? Today, I speak with Paul Sims. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. At the beginning of 2021, my guest today, Paul Sims, had come up with a set of predictions for 2021. Some came true, some didn't, but I was fascinated by a bunch of things, one of them being Paul's sort of implicit and explicit assessment of the context of these predictions. Right now, pharma is in a weird moment. It's a confluence of technology, consumer expectations, changes in care delivery accelerated by the pandemic, policy at the state and federal level, and the financial realities of where we're at today. So if you meet patients or providers or payers where they were like last year or the year before that, you're going to potentially be pretty far off the mark. There's also the financial realities, which pharma kind of exacerbated for themselves when some, many, spent the past however many years making their numbers by raising prices on existing drugs and developing drugs for mostly rare diseases, but then at the same time not innovating like antibiotics or for other diseases that impact so many lives. I mean, no comments on these strategies, but is it safe to then assume that an environment that allows for this sort of thing will continue indefinitely? Not only from a, is this really the most patient-centric thing we can do standpoint, especially when you consider how many patients are being left behind as a result of both the narrow focus and also the price points, upwards of 40% of Americans have said they've abandoned meds due to cost, after all, but potentially also from a business continuity standpoint. Right now, could be a decent time to start getting creative and experiment with new models and new ways to reach and engage. My guest today, Paul Sims, is the former chairman of I4 Pharma, which ran the largest events in the pharmaceutical space for a number of years. His new company, Impatient Health, helps a very conservative industry find ways to deliver and provide patient value. During our conversation, Paul made a bunch of thought-provoking points, but one of them I keyed on to was a kind of a counterpoint to the, you know, ye old pharmaceutical conventional wisdom that high drug prices are needed for innovation. He said that actually all the money slashing around could inhibit R&D innovation. Here's the thinking. If you can make a ton of money not being super innovative, then why be innovative? If you can make a ton of money not really improving OS overall survival in a meaningful way and not really helping a whole lot of patients, then why bother doing anything else? Especially if the anything else might require risk or new business models that are going to take time and determination. During our chat today, the work of Clay Christensen comes up more than once. Just to remind you, Clay Christensen is the one who coined the term disruptors. He wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, I think was back in the 90s. Keep in mind that the main point of that whole book is that if you're a big incumbent, it's pretty easy to cruise along thinking everything is great until you get kneecapped by a competitor who takes advantage of a new business model or consumer preference or technology or law, all of which are coming out of the woodwork right now. <laughs> Paul Sims has put it this way. When the habitat changes, evolution happens and entities that are able to adapt will thrive. I've also heard it put this way. It's not IQ or even EQ that matters most when change is afoot. It's AQ, the ability to adapt. 
My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Paul Sims, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Very happy to be here. Let me ask you this, Paul, and and sort of the underpinning of this whole question is going to be, why now? But as we all know from our investment advisors, I guess, the past is no predictor of future performance or whatever they say. But, you know, a lot of times, especially in the healthcare industry, the past has actually been a pretty stellar predictor of what is likely to occur in the future. I mean, there's been a lot of status quo going on in the healthcare industry in general and and, and certainly in the pharmaceutical industry. Then we hit 2020. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that this past year has been a break point of some kind and that the sort of safe humming along, you know, looking at what we did last year and doing the same thing this year, has that modus operandi become problematic in some way given 2020? Yeah, I I don't often sit on the fence, but in answer to this question, I am going to because I really see that we're at that catalyst point where we could go one way or the other. I think that in reality, some will and some won't. Some people are treating the pandemic almost as an excuse to not act and almost, I think, becoming victims of the pandemic as a result, not directly, maybe, but indirectly, and letting uh, the world decide for, for them as to where indeed they need to progress. Then I think you've got people who recognize that COVID is not just an accelerant, it can be an actual game changer uh, and seizing this opportunity as one that they perhaps have been waiting for for a long time to make change. One of the um, analogies I often use is looking at the Web 1.0 to the Web 2.0 world. If you think about it, um, the Web 1.0 world dominated by companies like GeoCities and AltaVista, AOL, Yahoo, pretty much all those companies are dead now or near dead so the disruption on the on in the world of tech has been so extreme that it's completely replaced the in dominant companies within a period of 20 years or, or less that's extreme i guess certainly compared to healthcare and, and pharmaceuticals but what actually created such a heavy change did something big actually happen As far as I can tell, the only things that really happened were that the internet became more ubiquitous and a bit faster. I guess it transitioned to our mobile phones. But apart from that, nothing actually changed. What did happen was a new generation of companies realized we'd got to a certain point, a certain threshold where enough of us were online such that they could create a different business model entirely. And you can't imagine Uber offline. You can't imagine Snapchat offline. You can't imagine many of these companies offline because they were only born in the ubiquitous internet world. So don't be surprised, I would say, if um, in garages up and down the country and then across the world, the new business models are being generated. You may not be able to see them yet. So this is a break point. It's not necessarily a break point for those large companies that haven't recognized it yet, but people need to improve their awareness at the very least as to a new generation of companies coming forward. Rita McGrath wrote a book called Seeing Around Corners, and she is a colleague of Clay Christensen who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. She just has any data point imaginable that shows that, you know, change happens really slowly until it doesn't. (laughs) And then it happens really fast. Yeah. So, you know. It's so hard because when customers leave you, they don't write you a nice message that tells you why they're leaving you and the fact that they found a new, better alternative solution. That unfortunately doesn't exist. You just have to be aware of them. And of course, so many, so many ventures don't go anywhere, but it's the classic blockbuster Netflix story. It's the classic Kodak digital story. It's the, you know, there are so many examples, BlackBerry even, and and iPhones. 
I'm looking at a McKinsey quote right now, which here's the quote. Indeed, recent data show that we have vaulted five years forward in consumer and business digital adoption in a matter of around eight weeks. The other aspect of this is just the massive, you know, encroaching on everybody else's business that's going on everywhere else in the healthcare marketplace. You know, payers are becoming providers. Providers are becoming generic drug manufacturers and tech companies and tech companies are becoming PBMs. You know, pharma just kind of separating itself from that whole fight over captive populations certainly doesn't seem to be the best way forward here. My question is, what now is the new business model that can exist in, in, in that world? We have to embrace things that we're, we're not used to embracing. We have to be artistic, not just creative. We have to you know, really take ourselves out of our comfort zone, expose ourselves to different cultures, places, environments in order to do that effectively. Not saying that that means we're going to go on the road of the crazy idea, but if we don't consider it, then unfortunately, that's where we're failing. And I could imagine that it would be very difficult to be artistic and creative and imaginative. Like you can't do that when you're in the middle of a fire drill. It doesn't work so well. The objective here would be to start with enough of a rampway so that if we need to make incremental changes or think things through carefully or run a couple of pilot programs or, you know, put pieces in place so that we are prepared, there's enough lead time that this can be done, that we're giving ourselves the grace to be artistic. Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot about agility. That's a perhaps overused word in the world of business now. And you could easily argue that agility is the mindset that is almost designed for the uncertain environment that we're in now because it allows you to pivot and, and change quickly. What I'm advocating is, is actually a stage pre-agility, which allows you to start in a better place, which is to take those blinkers off and to think more imaginatively at the beginning, then pursue all of the agile methods and, and various different measurement techniques in order to, to pivot or persevere effectively from that point onwards. And it is in fact possible for a large bureaucratic risk averse regulatory, you know, is, is obviously a big factor here. I don't mean to single out the pharmaceutical industry here. There are plenty of other large stakeholders that meet these same criteria. But, you know, we're talking about pharma right now. It is, in fact, possible for an organization such as this to be agile. Yes, but it can't be managed in the same way. It can't be financed in the same way. It has to be financed in a more patient manner. That's another teaching of uh, Clay Christensen and his colleagues. It has to be uh, separated from the main business in some way. That doesn't mean it's the classic kind of uh, uh, skunk works type model, but that is one model that can work. What there has to be is very clear objectives and a very good sense of freedom. If you want an entrepreneur to really exist within a larger organization, they have to rid themselves of so many of the ties of the existing mainstream organization. By the way, I don't blame pharmaceutical companies for being bureaucratic, bureaucratic and slow and conservative. That's been a necessary way that they've had to do business, but it's not going to enable them to compete with Google and Apple and all of the, the, the technology players that are beginning to take larger bites, bites out of the, the healthcare, healthcare world. And possibly, I don't believe it'll happen in the next five to 10 years, but possibly even start to make forays into what the world that has been traditionally dominated by pharmaceutical companies are coming up with new treatments. You've seen the grass shoots of, of being able to do that just through large data sets already from organizations like Verily, part of Google, or soon to be spun out of Google. So yeah, absolutely. You know what I would love to hear, Paul? 
if we're talking about artistic and creative and imaginative and, and even innovative, what are the types of art, <laughs> if you were going to put them in, in sort of categories that, that we're talking about here? Are we talking about mainly coming up with new treatments or are we talking about new ways to deliver the products or new supply chains or, or you know, like if you were going to categorize the types of new ways to think about things, how would you bucket them? Well, I believe that the scientists are improving almost exponentially. If you drew a graph of progress, it would be a steep curve getting ever steeper. And honestly, the latest um, science is incredible. It's, it's almost magic. I wouldn't criticize there at all. If you were to draw another curve on your same graph of the science that actually reaches the patient, you would obviously imagine it would be a much more gentle curve. That sounds very academic and very nice. But if you think about it, the gap between those two curves is basically people we could have saved but didn't. In other words, where the science existed, but it didn't get there. And we may not see bodies lying in the streets, but ultimately the gap between those curves is often deaths or certainly uh, a lot of injury. I believe that R&D typically will take a decade or more to pivot, and that's not going to happen anytime soon, despite the huge disruption that the pandemic has caused. It is up to people outside of the R&D space. I see science, I hold that up on a bit of a pedestal, but I see that the more the imagination and the change in the ways in which we work from everyone outside of the scientific parts, which by the way, is the majority of employees within a pharmaceutical company. They're the ones that need to act. They have been almost just calling themselves distributors. You know, they call themselves salespeople, but really treating themselves no better than just mere distributors of medicines. They need to be seen and need to have the self-belief that they can be innovators too. That is where a huge change needs to be, be made. I'm picturing this in my head, as you just said, we've got the science, which is ramping up. Then we've got this lower curve, which shows the science that actually reaches patients. The area of opportunity would be the area between the, those two curves. I think it's a matter of being able to drive innovation from the patient. I think it's a matter of being able to change the system. I think it's a matter of being able to create different processes around market access that allow for preventative medicine. So there's so many different nuances and so much potential there. The mind boggles at what is possible, but is not yet being achieved. That's, I guess, why I'm here. That's why I'm in this industry, because there is so much potential. If we think about those things, you know, like that, that area inside the curve, the object there would be, as you just mentioned, how do we enable patients to get these, these medications? You know, one of the things which is not a secret is the rising cost of medications these days, which would seem to be in direct conflict with what you just said. You know, on one hand, we're trying to enable patients to gain access to these medications. But then on the other hand, obviously price is is a pretty clear barrier. How do you navigate that conflict? The sad story is that the main way that the industry has increased its profits over the past few years has mainly been through just price rises without a corresponding increase in value. In fact, healthcare generally as a sector is vying for education as the industry that has increased its prices the most without a corresponding in in <laughs> change in value. And that is very, very sad indeed. And then the industry has focused on specialty medicines. I find this very difficult to cope with. I, I regard it as if the automotive industry was to only make Ferraris, right? Ferraris are probably wonderful cars and uh, have their place in the world, but they are only suitable for a very small segment. And if the entire car industry made Ferraris only, you can imagine how quickly that would fall out of favor and, and how, how poorly it would do. So 
you know, we're in a situation here where the industry has focused so heavily on the science and so heavily on these advanced medications, which are wonderful, but has neglected that middle because they haven't been able to generate the revenues from from it and they, they can't see a route out of it. In fact, I think it's quite sad when major pharmaceutical companies have dropped research in areas as significant as diabetes and chronic heart failure. We all know the story of antibiotics and how little research there's been in there, despite the, the general world level and need for that. I personally, and I actually find that most people on an individual level within the industry actually agree with me. It's just on a macro level that they can't say the same. Uh, they actually think that prices should fall, particularly in the US where, where they are higher, because I think that would generate the necessary innovation that is absolutely required to serve patients better. If we couldn't make as much money out of some of these treatments, yes, it would be horrific to uh, employees who are depending on the financial performance of their companies, but I think it would provide the the abyss that uh, staring into that would actually generate the kind of change we need. Painful in the short term, better in the long term. I genuinely believe that. We had Dr. Bruce Rector on the show. It was probably a year ago now. But one of the things that he very clearly stated is that I th- I'm going to say no, very few, but I'm pretty sure he said that no pharma company that has manufactured an antibiotic has made money <laughs> in the past, however long. So I could see how it would be very difficult. I think we need government. I don't think that any C-suite leader is going to do anything that's going to lower the profitability of their company deliberately, even if it helps them in the longer term, because shareholders are obviously the owners of these companies and demand short-term profits. What we need is for governments to grow more teeth and to actually enable stronger price controls of various different descriptions without obviously killing competition and all of the free market things that we might want to keep. But we absolutely need that price pressure. So we absolutely need government to be the pressurizing factor. That's, I would argue, the role of government. You know, polluters do not throw random chemicals into lakes because government prohibits them to do so, despite it being the most profitable thing for them to do. We need intervention, and I don't think it's anti-competitive or anti-free market to say so. One of the things that you're saying is a little bit in counterpoint to the promoted tweets, which are showing up in my Twitter feed anyway, advocating the, the point that to protect innovation, prices have to be high. It's obviously true on a macro level, but it's not as if companies will just immediately stop innovating the moment that there's more price pressure at all. There there absolutely does need to be. There's also the excuse that pharma levels very often that, you know, they're not the ones taking, particularly in the US, the lion's share of those price rises. Pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, seeing it seen as an unfortunate evil that's joined the equation by, by many industry executives. So we absolutely need to take a very worldly and macro level view of this in order to make a better system. From just a sort of critical mass perspective, I've never seen so many individuals, even people outside of the healthcare industry who are becoming very well aware of the, let's just say, nuances of the the pharmaceutical supply chain in the United States. I want to circle back to a couple of things that you, you've said. At the beginning of this year, you had come up with your predictions for 2021. One of the things that you were talking about is how pharma is buying the consumer. Do you want to explain what you meant? by that? I would argue that an extrapolation of what I said earlier, an extrapolation of the fact that a farmer is building Ferraris means that we have left this middle zone 
uncatered for. There's so much innovation that needs to happen in chronic disease in simply enabling patients to self-manage. It's still shocking how, how some of the most basic diseases, people can't get an accurate readout on their own vital signs in an easy way. As a result of that, the opportunity now is in non-medicine products, you could say, or non-medicine services, often digital, often service-based, often subscription-based in terms of payments. And this is really the territory that the big tech companies are looking at with their BDIs and, and seeing as a great opportunity. And the reality is that the pharmaceutical industry has no relationship with its end user, the patient. It has no understanding, really, of the end user. I personally am involved in many projects to try and improve that, but it's so difficult from a compliance point of view to get those kind of insights on a real-time basis that they that, that, that companies need. So when I say pharma is going to buy the consumer, what I mean is that they're going to have to buy themselves into having that patient understanding. The only way in which they're going to be able to, to get there is through taking a, a radical and probably M&A driven approach to actually understanding and owning the consumer in any way. It's necessary. It's necessary. And, and that's why I see it as a strong prediction that it's going to happen. So if you're talking about the from an M&A perspective, who do you buy in order to achieve that aim? I was thinking about the company Babylon earlier. I don't know if it's going to be big pharma or big tech, but that to me seems like the sort of organization that is absolutely prime acquisition target for these kind of organizations. They have the customer relationship. They are neutral. Yes, it's going to be have some kind of arm's length relationship if big pharma was to, to get involved. But I certainly think that at the very least, there could be a strong partnership basis being made. We've seen 23andMe take a very strong partnership relationship with GSK and probably other companies by now as well. So Babylon Health, I'm, I'm just looking this up now. So Babylon gives you 24-7 all-in-one healthcare. I'm assuming it's it's a, a telemedicine with a twist. And then obviously 23andMe is, is genetics. It's these companies that have this data-driven consumer relationship that I think are very interesting. Otherwise, ultimately, the pharmaceutical industry will become a supplier and nothing more, completely losing control beyond the, the science and the coming up with the products itself. There's so many things I'd like to say about this. Let me semi-organize my thoughts here. For one, it's definitely a point to ponder how frankly poorly in general pharma tends to do when attempting to partner with smaller, agile type companies who haven't grown up in the pharma space themselves and don't know how, for example, regulatory works. Or if they have grown up in the pharma space, they don't seem to be able to scale effectively, in my experience. You know, of course, there's public, dare I say, calamities, like how the pair Novartis collaboration didn't seem to, to work out. I think that no matter whether pharma thinks it's going to build or buy, there's still a definite need to do, as you say, to figure out how they are going to allow themselves to help patients and nothing for nothing providers in a meaningful way. There seems to be this rampant notion amongst some pharma leaders that if you aren't selling the pill, it's a big old waste of time. It reminds me of like ABC, always be closing from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, that old movie. The problem with ABC is it's pretty tone deaf in today's, you know, in air quotes, post-trust environment. Earning trust today is a precursor to selling anything sustainably, not an afterthought, if you ask me and 
many others. If I'm putting the pieces together, obviously we, we talked earlier about how the area of opportunity is the area under the curve. Given all the expertise that pharma has, oftentimes, especially if we're talking about a rare disease or something which is very clinically tied to a mechanism of action, there is nobody, there's no other stakeholder anywhere really that probably has the depth of expertise and being able to use it so the patients actually really benefit from that molecule in a way that meets their needs and meets them where they are. Yeah, you're not wrong. You know what the funny thing is? The ironic thing is the majority of startups that work on, for example, digital health solutions, they cannot gain the scale and the different understanding of nuances and the access to, to doctors at the scale that they are, despite having more funding than ever any time previously. And that's possibly one of the reasons why Big Pharma has felt it hasn't need to change its business model hugely. It's been able to use its scale as an asset in actually making these remedies happen. I think that pharma companies could also become very complacent. There are companies trying to go it alone without that kind of partnership and to go straight to the consumer. You know, we talked about that graph earlier of those two curves and the lower one actually um, being, you know, what actually reaches the patient. But I see no reason why the lower curve couldn't get closer to the upper curve and even overtake the upper curve. You know, why is it that the upper curve, which is, you know, the possibility of science, can't be superseded by the what you know what's possible in so many areas beyond science. I mean, when a patient sees a physician, the medication is only one part. It's a major part, true, but it's only one part of what you need to get better. There's no reason why the prescription or the guidance for taking on other services and other non-medicine related things couldn't mean that the benefit that the patient derives is actually superseded the science. The medication should be a catalyst to achieve better health. Yeah, absolutely. I just think it's a mindset change first that we need to have in order to make that happen. Most people have, have probably never thought of it in this way. I wouldn't if I hadn't put myself in certain situations either. So that's what I mean by being sort of almost daring enough to, to dream and, to, and me throwing out predictions once a year is Almost the biggest reason why I do it is simply to give oxygen to others to enable them to do it. I'm not here to be right or wrong. I'm just here to enable the conversation to happen. Well, we very much look forward to your 2022 version. But before we wrap this up, I just want to ask you, do you have any examples? And you may not, but do you have any examples of a pharma company that's doing anything that you talked about well? What I find is that companies make significant efforts and that they don't quite gain the same traction as quickly as they might like to. It's funny because those people that work on the digital and innovation side of companies feel that they've got unfair rules. They somehow are expected to come up with results in a year or less when the R&D department is allowed a full decade or more before it can come up with results. So there seems to be this great impatience that companies can turn around these non-medicine initiatives more quickly. It's so often seen as just ancillary or being whimsical to senior executives when companies do invest in these things. And inevitably, leadership changes three or four years later and uh, a new person wants their own initiatives. Well, probably another aspect here, which you sort of touched on, but let me just say it bluntly. If we're, we're contemplating this relative to an organizational leadership, thinking that it is a win to figure out what patients need and then authentically give it to them versus if you're not selling the drug, you're wasting our time. I do feel like that there can be some conflict there, which ultimately diminishes a pharma company's ability to be seen as a 
you know, partner in the pursuit of better patient outcomes as opposed to a salesperson? Yeah, everything you just said is why I think that government needs to act because I think we ultimately need to ask the question, what are we paying for? Are we paying for medicines? Are we paying for pharmaceutical companies to become suppliers? Or are we paying for value? Are we paying for whatever it takes, whatever it might be, to change the fundamental way in which we look after ourselves and to stay healthy. And I think that a lot of governments, again, have this short-termist view and they focus solely on cost when actually a slightly more long-term and a slightly more open-minded view might allow pharmaceutical companies to be reimbursed for more of a service than a product model and to be able to think more imaginatively about what it is that they provide. You mentioned that pharmaceutical companies have the reach, the the expertise, the power, the sway, the know-how about different health systems. They do. They're just not using them yet because they're not going to get paid to use them right now. So it's a huge missed opportunity. This is another reason why I say we're an immature industry, because as the environment changes, and that's what obviously creates changes in evolutionary generally, as the habitat modifies, then that's where these new species will emerge and will have more sophisticated species overtaking the world that we live in and to patients' benefit. And I think, you know, what we've got going on right now with Medicare Advantage plans to some extent and to additionally with large employers who are doing some very interesting prospective bundling and and risk sharing, et cetera. I think that is definitely starting to creep into the area of what you're talking about relative to, you know, policy and and government. So we have that. Just one more question for you because I'm fascinated. I will be fascinated by your answer. Paul, what's the worst advice that you hear floating around right now? It sounds like you are in so many different conversations with so many senior leaders. I would be very interested to hear what other things that maybe they're being told, which you disagree with. Uh, The first thing that came to my mind when you said that is just how much energy is spent on things like customer experience and branding within the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, if you think about travel, when you book your next vacation, are you going to go to every single hotel website and compare and contrast them before you make your decision? Or are you going to go to, you know, booking.com or TripAdvisor? When you book the flight, are you going to go to each carrier's website or are you going to go to one of the portals? It seems to me that the pharmaceutical industry's reaction to the pandemic has been we need to double down on differentiating ourselves through good branding and and making sure that we're pushing the doctor into the, the zone that we want them to be in, when it seems incredibly inevitable to me that the actual feet on the ground will illustrate that what HCPs will value is, is being able to compare and contrast and get independent verifiable information. So I just lament the amount of efforts and money and pain that's going to be wasted on this entire exercise. I think that the the 1% of people who've worked on the COVID vaccine have done an amazing job over the past 18 months. The 99% of our industry that has not worked on the COVID vaccine, I think, has done pretty appallingly and has responded, I believe, in one of the worst possible ways, which is to double down on some of the poor practices of old. So that's something I wish I could wave a magic wand and change. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Paul Sims, if people are interested in learning more about your work, where would you direct them? I would suggest just uh, finding me on LinkedIn. Uh, And obviously, if anybody wishes for assistance in pursuing more ambitious and creative goals within the very rigid um, environment that we survive in, then I would love to hear, hear from them. Paul Sims, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for a great conversation. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com.
If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.